Tonight I want to talk to you about why we should trust Jesus. As we come to make our vote in the state election, all these promises of the leaders... Is this going to work for me tonight? Back one. All these promises of the leaders demand an answer to the question, can you trust Leader L or Party B to deliver on their promises, assuming you think they're good promises. But much more important is this question, can you trust Jesus to keep his promises? Promises like this one in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants you to take on his yoke, but he promises rest and a light burden. Can you trust him to keep that promise? Can you trust Jesus to keep any promise? In our passage tonight, we're going to see what should motivate us to trust Jesus. What should motivate you to trust Jesus is the same thing that motivates Jesus to pursue a plan he knows will cost him. But before we see that, we're going to see Judas pursuing a rather different motivations to Jesus. So what motivates Judas to pursue a plan he knows will cost Jesus? Jesus Judas is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, the team being trained up to assist with his ministry and to lead and to grow the church after Jesus has gone. But we see here in this bit of Luke chapter 22 that Judas is an opportunist and it's the religious leaders who give him that opportunity. The religious leaders don't like Jesus. They're jealous of his popularity. They, they think he's a blasphemer against God because he claims a special father and son relationship with God. They're affronted by the way he exposes their hypocrisy. All of this makes the leaders see Jesus a threat to them. They've planned to execute Jesus, but notice back in verse 37 of chapter 21, Jesus is very popular. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Can you see the problem the leaders have? They want to get rid of Jesus, but how can they arrest him? By day he's surrounded by all these people hanging on his words. To act then would be to risk a riot. And by night, well... He's not even in the city at night, so how are they going to find him? And it's nearly the time for the festival of unleavened bread and Passover. And at that time, all Jews from Galilee and in the rest of Judea outside of Jerusalem would come in to Jerusalem. There were thousands of Jewish pilgrims who'd be beginning to crowd the city. Jesus is a problem, and the leaders were told, verse 2, are looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, but they're afraid of the people. So enter Judas the opportunist. Jude, Judas has a close relationship with Jesus, which means he can tip the leaders off to where Jesus is so that Jesus can be arrested when all the crowds aren't around. And so there in verse 6, we learn that Judas consents 
and watches for an opportunity to hand Jesus over when there's no crowd present. Have you heard of the way they cull feral donkeys in northern Australia? There are lots of them, and they use what's called a Judas donkey. There are two Judas donkeys there. Uh, a female donkey is a given uh, a, like a necklace, it's a radio, and it has a radio transmitter in it. And she's set free, and a team in helicopters track her until a donkey leads them to a herd. And they shoot all the donkeys except the Judas donkey, and she's then free to go to another herd. And donkeys are very social animals. They don't stick with the same sort of family all their life. So she wanders off to another herd, and the process continues. It's an apt name, isn't it? The donkey, like her human namesake, leads the killers to their prey. What is it that motivates Judas to pursue a plan he knows will cost Jesus? Well, on the one hand, you can see it in verse 3, that it's the influence of Satan. Satan entered Judas. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the desert, Jesus, remember, rejected Satan's attempts to lead him astray from his destiny. He rejected Satan's tempting shortcuts to power. And then throughout his ministry, Jesus has consistently butted heads with Satan as he's exercised demons from people. And Jesus himself said, that's like the strong man going in, seizing the house of an opponent and clearing it out to take it over. So it isn't surprising here that Satan's once again on the front foot trying to damage Jesus' ministry. And what better way to do that than to seduce one of his close followers to betray him to his opponents? Of course, the thing Satan doesn't know is that God's heaps smarter than him. He should know that, I guess. The thing he doesn't know is that it's all part of God's plan that the opponents put Jesus to the cross. But thinking about Judas's motivations, on the one hand, Satan obviously motivates Jesus to pursue a plan he knows will cost Jesus. But that doesn't mean that Judas is not morally culpable here. As Jesus says near the end of our passage there in verse 22, the son of man will go as as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Judas is tempted by a payoff. Look at verse 5. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. We know from Matthew's version of this event that Judas exchanged his friend Jesus' life for 30 pieces of silver. And we know from Acts chapter 1 that Judas did the Sydney thing. What do you think he did with the money? He used it to buy real estate, a piece, a field. And one of Judas's fellow apostles, John, would later write about Judas and describe him as a thief because Judas was the treasurer of the, of the little ministry, Jesus' little ministry team, but John says he helped himself to the money bag that was meant to be used for the ministry. So I guess for Judas, some motivation here was the money. It was plain old greed that motivated Jesus. And maybe in Judas's mind, it was justified because as Jesus' ministry went on, it's become clearer and clearer that he isn't going to ascend to a king's throne like the Jews expected of their long-awaited Messiah. Judas 
might have expected to share the benefits of being close to the Messiah, you know, one of the, the special close uh, workers. But this Messiah's trajectory was away from wealth and away from power. Maybe Jesus, Judas thought, I didn't sign up for that. So Satan, playing on Judas' greed and disappointed hopes, leads to Judas being motivated to pursue a plan Judas knows will cost Jesus. To sell him out to his enemies can only mean pain and death for Jesus. Now, Jesus knows all this. He knows what Judas is up to, and yet he goes with the plan. What, what is it that motivates Jesus to pursue a plan he knows will cost him? And why should that make us trust him? Well, we find out in the so-called Last Supper, which they begin to prepare for, from verse 7. It's the, the Passover festival. And at the Passover, the lambs are sacrificed on this particular morning. And then from sundown that day, it's time for the Passover feast in which the lambs will be eaten. The Passover feast is the annual feast that for nearly 1,300 years has reminded every Jewish man, woman and child of God's mighty act of rescue of their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. has reminded them of when a lamb was slaughtered in every Jewish household so that its blood could be painted around the doorpost. The lamb and its blood was in substitute for the firstborn son of the family. And then on that extraordinary night, when God's angel of death passed through Egypt, he passed over the Israelite houses. The firstborn son in every Israelite household didn't die like the firstborn son did in every Egyptian household on that night. And the Egyptians couldn't get rid of the Israelites fast enough after that. It was a, that night a defining event in Israel becoming a nation and it was one they were to remember every year, for it reminded them that God was for them and had powerfully and graciously saved them to be his people. So the Passover had to be celebrated at this time each year and it had to be celebrated in the city. But as we know, Jesus tended to camp out in the Garden of Olives each night. And they're from Galilee, so they don't own a house in Jerusalem. So Luke tells us about the organisation of a private upstairs room where Jesus and his 12 disciples could have the Passover feast. And notice the secrecy of the arrangements that Jesus shares with Peter and John. It reminds me of one of those spy movies where there's uh, code phrases and where people meet in a crowded railway station and purposely, though subtly, exchange matching briefcases. You see it here from verse 10. Peter and John asked Jesus, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? Verse 10, he replies, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. There's a sign. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, here's the code words, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. And so finding all that, Peter and John prepare the Passover. Now, some people think in that little uh, picture, that little scene, Jesus is demonstrating his undoubted supernatural powers. 
that he can foresee there'll be a man walking through the street carrying a water jar. But I think he's just demonstrating his supernatural power to read hearts. He knows what Jesus, Judas is up to, and so he secretly made arrangements to hire or borrow a space. And he doesn't give John and Peter an address. That way Judas won't overhear the address and be able to tip off uh, Jesus' enemies about where, they might be, where Jesus might be that night. Interesting fun fact that I read is that at the time it was generally only women who carried water jars. Men carried water in leather skins. And so a man carrying a water jar really stood out as well. Jesus already knows this plan will cost him. Yet he takes the steps to ensure Judas can't execute the betrayal plan before or during the Passover feast. Why is that? He was going to end up being betrayed anyway. Why is it that he delays effectively Judas being successful with his plan till after the feast? Well, it's because it's really important to Jesus that he celebrates the Passover before he dies. And aren't we glad he did? Because it's there that during the meal that we see what motivates Jesus to pursue a plan that he knows will cost him. Imagine the scene, but not like this famous painting of Leonardo da Vinci of The Last Supper. What's wrong with this famous Leonardo da Vinci painting? Compare verse 14. Have a look at verse 14. What's wrong with this painting? Sorry? Oh, that's a point. Didn't think of that one, but yes, good observation, Paul. Yeah. Something else. Yeah, what's she doing there? Yeah, who is she? Yes. No, it's not that actually, but that's a good one. Good observation, Annika. Very good observation. What simply from verse 14, uh, they didn't sit on chairs around a table, they reclined. In those days, that's what you did. You reclined on couches. Uh, round the table. So maybe it was more like this, artist's impression. Maybe, I don't know. You notice that one, if you count the numbers, can you see the one in the back going out? It's Judas. Yeah. Notice in this passage how emotional Jesus is at the beginning. As the meal begins... He's very emotional. And no wonder, this is his farewell dinner. When people are leaving a job, they can get quite emotional at thinking of, say, leaving a church, farewells. People can get quite emotional or a retirement dinner. Well, hear the emotion in verse 15. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says a similar thing in verse 18 about the wine. He won't eat and drink the Passover meal until it finds fulfilment in the coming kingdom of God. One of the Bible images of heaven that we have in the Old Testament is of a banquet where all God's people joyfully eat, knowing that death has been defeated forever. And they're with Uh, their king, the Messiah, and and with God. Well, one day when Jesus returns to collect up his people and give them their resurrection bodies for eternity, 
the time for that banquet will have arrived. Until then, well, it's going to be like Jesus has to undergo a very long 40-hour famine. He won't eat and drink the Passover until that joyful day when he's united with his people forever. And it's now that Jesus, here in the story, does something really, really radical. Quite shocking, really, if you were one of the disciples. And as he does it, we'll finally get the answer to the question, what motivates Jesus to pursue a plan he knows will cost him? And why should you trust him? As I said, for nearly 1,300 years, the leader of the family at the Passover meal has gone through a series of uh, remembrances of words from the Bible and words of praise reminding everyone that at the Passover, back in Egypt, God, through his amazing grace, saved Israel from death and slavery. That was meant to remind Israel of where she'd come from and who she could depend on, who she owed allegiance to, and who she could trust. And when Jesus should be pointing his disciples to God's activity in Egypt, he takes the unleavened bread and he says, look at verse 19, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When he should be saying, this represents the unleavened bread our ancestors ate in Egypt on the night of the Passover, Jesus says, this bread represents me, my body. In future, do this in remembrance of me. Do this Passover in remembrance of me, not of what happened in Egypt. And he does the same with the cup. Instead of reminding them of the blood that was painted on the doorposts of their ancestors on that night in Egypt, he says, verse 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, this cup represents my blood, not some lamb's blood back in Egypt 1,300 years ago. From now on, to be exact, from when Jesus sheds his blood, in other words, when he dies on the cross in about 16 hours, the new covenant will be established between God and mankind. No longer will relationship with God be maintained through the blood of sacrificed animals and remembering events in Egypt over 1,300 years ago. Now it'll be the long-promised new covenant of forgiveness of sins and the giving of the Holy Spirit to every person who accepts and trusts Jesus as the Messiah. And those people will remember not the lamb, the blood and bread in Egypt, but the body and blood of Jesus in Jerusalem in AD 33. Very quickly, the early church began to regularly eat a meal together in which they remembered the body crucified and the blood shed. And we still do that today. And so it's really important what we do once a month on the second Sunday evening when we have the, what we call now the Lord's Supper. Don't think of it as an inconvenient element that just makes the service go longer and makes supper come later. It, it's, it's really important because we pause to remind each other of when Jesus died and rose. When we do that, it's remembering what he does. 
And it's remembering that in that act, God our Father was, was treating Jesus as the sacrifice for people's sins so that he could extend grace to us and adopt us into his family. It's a, a really special time when we remember so that we can relate to Jesus and our Father properly. In later centuries, the church began to teach that the bread and wine literally became the body and blood of Jesus whenever we had that remembrance time, that last supper. It was a nonsense and it's still a nonsense. At the Passover, they didn't think that the blood of the lamb and the bread they used became the blood of the lamb back in Egypt 1,300 years earlier or anything like that. They were mere symbols to remind them of the real thing. And now Jesus has done a new thing and he's given the remembrance to be about his body, his blood, his death, in other words, a new subject, it's his death, But that doesn't make the bread his actual body or the blood his or the wine his actual blood. I'm happy to talk more about that later on after the service if if you want to ask more about that. Jesus has here instituted a remembrance of his death that we still carry out today because it's just so, so important. It's about remembering Jesus and what he's done. And to remember that, what motivates Jesus to pursue a plan that will cost him is you. Ultimately for Jesus, it's not about me, but you. Can you notice the words I skipped over in verse 19? I'll put them on the screen actually. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And verse 20 This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What motivates Jesus to pursue a plan that he knows will cost him is you and you, because you need forgiveness of sins. Your need of salvation from judgment we all deserve. Your need of a surefire way to be reconciled to God the Father so we can dwell in his presence for eternity. It's because of us and our need that Jesus has pursued a plan that will cost him his life. There's a series of adventure thriller books called Orphan X. Orphan X is an assassin with heart. Orphan X, or Evan as he's known to his very, very few acquaintances, is a vigilante for the abused and mistreated. For the little guy or girl, especially if they're young, old or a poor immigrant, In one story, Evan is assigned to look after a feisty teenage girl who's in a lot of danger. When he suddenly appears at her safe house, she doesn't trust him. In fact, she tries to kill him. He outwits her and gradually, as Evan saves and protects her through a number of of, um, experiences, the girl begins to trust him. She recognises finally that everything he does is for her benefit, not his own, and and therefore she can trust him. 
Well, popular culture figures like Orphan X take their cue from Jesus, who gave his body for you and who allowed his blood to be poured out for you. He gave his life for you. So do you think you can trust him? An advantage the government will have over Labor in next weekend's election is that the Premier can keep pointing to what her government has done, to the promises they've kept and say, keep on trusting, look at our record. It's always an advantage the sitting sitting government has when they've got something they've done. Well, Jesus tells us, do this in remembrance of me so we'll keep knowing that we can trust him. So we'll keep remembering what, what he's done. So I want to ask you, do you think he can, you can trust that he cares for you even when things are going badly due to sickness or bad relationships? Remember the promise we saw earlier tonight, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Do you reckon you can trust that promise? The one who made that promise is for you. You know he has. You're reminded of that every time we do the Lord's Supper. Or what about when you're faced with a moral decision about doing what is right versus doing what is comfortable or convenient or potentially lucrative? Well, are you going to trust and obey Jesus then? Why would you? Well, he gave his body for you and so you can trust him and his promises like this, like this one that he gave through the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.9. Let us not become weary in doing good, in doing right. For at the proper time, we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. Can you trust that promise? Is Jesus trustworthy? Or or what about when others seem more materially successful than you, despite the fact that they don't care about Jesus? What, What have you got to remember to help you trust a promise like this? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. What have you got? You've got his life that's been given for you, that's been paid to redeem you from your sin and death and judgment. And what about if you feel wronged by someone? What about if somebody treats you, mistreats you and you want payback? Why then might you be willing to forgive and hold no record of wrongs? Well, maybe if you remember what he did for you, that he gave his body and his blood so you could be forgiven. If he did that for you, well, trust him enough to show the same mercy to someone else, to obey Jesus' command, to forgive your brother or sister from the heart. When you have a saviour, who's proven himself to be so trustworthy because what he's done is for us and not for himself. You have every reason to trust and I think every reason to obey him, even in the hard things. What motivated Judas to pursue a plan he knew would cost Jesus was his own gain? What motivated Jesus to pursue a plan he knew would cost him was you. So is what motivates you to pursue your plans, your actions, your trust in Jesus? What would your life look like if it was?